Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Eric Hatch, and this is the beginning, episode one, our once upon a time. This is the introduction of this podcast, and I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to be here and to check out this new podcast. If you checked out the trailer, welcome. We are on our first Tuesday of the month, and that is where we just spend some time in a story, in an unfolding story of someone's life, or in this case, the unfolding story of narrative practices themselves, which is what we're going to be talking a lot about uh, in the coming weeks and months and hopefully years on this podcast. So... Thank you for being here. Please feel free to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a future episode and get ready because we are going to have some fun today and I have a special, special guest in the house uh, to kick off this podcast. So I want to introduce you to Jill Friedman. And so Jill Friedman, uh, who's our guest today, she's the co-director of the Evanston Family Therapy Center, as well as the founding member of the Chicago Center for Family Health. She's internationally recognized for her advances in narrative therapy and training. So her and her husband, Gene Combs, they received the 2009 Award for Innovative Contribution to Family Therapy from the American Family Therapy Academy. In addition to all that, Jill has also co-authored more than 30 journal articles and book chapters and even written three books, including Narrative Therapy, The Social Construction of Preferred Realities. Jill practices therapy in the Chicago area and consults to organizations and schools. She's on the international faculty of the Dulwich Center and teaches in the low residency master's program in narrative therapy and community work offered by the Dulwich Center and the University of Melbourne, which is where I met Jill. This is where I met you as being a part of her cohort uh, with other North American uh, peeps and people from around the world. So welcome, Jill, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's exciting to be in on the beginning of this. Yeah, this is the beginning. And what's really exciting about this is we are probably even in this first episode, introducing people to a whole new world because this whole idea of all things narrative is that we as people love stories. We love to tell stories about ourselves. We love to go and pay money to see stories on the big screen or read stories in books. So we have this, uh, this love of story, but there's this whole other world of narrative that a lot of people, at least in my context, aren't as familiar with, and that's, of course, the world of narrative therapy. And so in this episode, we really want to try to give you an introduction to the story of narrative therapy from Jill's perspective. And so before we get started with all that, would you mind, Jill, just taking a second and telling our viewers what narrative therapy is? Oh, For those maybe who don't question. know, <laughs> I know if you could boil yeah. it down somehow into, you know, maybe it's most essential elements for somebody who yeah. doesn't know. Okay. 
I think there are a number of aspects that really characterize narrative therapy. And one of them is the narrative metaphor. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that um, although people often think that particular events are the stories of their lives, that there are all sorts of other stories that could have other meanings. And so one of the things that we're up to as narrative therapists is noticing those events that's ha that have happened in people's lives that speak of possibilities um, and identity for them that's different than what a problematic story thinks about. So that's one aspect. Mm -hmm. I think another aspect is locating problems in the larger sociocultural context rather than inside of people. Mm -hmm. Another aspect is, is um, thinking about identity as mm -hmm. something that develops over time and that what we do creates a platform for who we're becoming. Um, that, that we don't have this essential identity mm -hmm. that we're stuck with. Can I tell a story that has to do with that? Would that be okay? Yes, of course. Okay, so on that very first trip uh, to Australia that, that Jean and I took, um, we had, before that trip, we had written um, uh, our book, Simple Story and Ceremony. Mm -hmm. And we wrote most of that book, maybe three quarters of that book, before we met Michael White. Um, his background was in therapy, correct? Michael White had a degree in social work. Okay. And but he and he had been doing therapy for for quite a long time in a variety of contexts. Mm -hmm. He 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 had done work with um, people who were in and out of um, hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, labeled as schizophrenic and people, uh, children who were struggling with encapresis. So a huge, mm. a big variety yeah. of, of um, problems that he had been working with. Yeah. And, but he was around just when we were finishing up that book and he suggested to us because um, it was influenced by, it was sort of somewhat Ericksonian. It was pretty Ericksonian. And he said that David Epstein had also studied Erickson. So he suggested to us that we asked David to do a blurb for it. And we hadn't met David. We asked him to do a blurb. He graciously agreed and did something for us, wrote something about the book. And so when we visited Australia, David invited us to come and spend a little bit of time um, with, with, uh, with him and Anne in mm -hmm. Auckland. So we did. And um, we had this lovely dinner at their house and we were talking and um, David said, you know, I really, really liked your book, except for one thing, that you kept using the word resources. Mm. Now, that really puzzled us because resources we thought was a good thing. It's a word used by Ericksonians quite a lot. Yeah. And um, we didn't, he said, you know, it makes me feel like you're like digging things out of people, like you're mining inside of people for something. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get it. We just didn't get it. And when we came back to Adelaide, um, we were talking to Michael about our meeting David and and we said, you know, he said something to us, but we just don't understand it. And we told him what David had said. And he said, um, well, I don't like, why is that so like confusing? And he tried to explain to us that idea that I was just talking about, that people 
become who they are through what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, They have all different kinds of possibilities, different stories. And he even said, I think people have the capability of being, of doing really horrible things. I think everybody does. And that that influences who they're becoming as a person or doing very good things. Yeah. Now, that was a very, very challenging idea to me. Mm-hmm. because I had always believed that deep down I was a really good person, no matter what I did. Mm. And so when Michael said that to me, I just, I like, I lost my balance. I, 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 I couldn't stand literally. I had to like sit down. I felt nauseated. And um, the idea that I couldn't just count on, I was a certain way that I had to be that way if I wanted to claim it that it mattered what I did in the world. It mattered what I said, that mattered how I acted. And through performing those things, I was becoming a particular kind Mm. of person. Yeah. Um, And I later realized, well, that's a pretty important thing to think about if you're a therapist, Mm -hmm. because that means there's all these possibilities for people. But when I first thought about it, it was incredibly disorienting. Yeah. Well, it's disorienting because I feel like we're trained so much of the time to classify people as one thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, it's, that's a good person. That's a bad person. That's this kind of person. That person's diagnosed with that. And when you, and it's, it's easy. And I think that's why we get so caught up in it. But when we realize that people are full of possibilities and people mm-hmm. can go in any direction you know, they could take their story in any direction. There's something liberating about that, but there's also something very almost daunting about that because the world isn't so easy or black and white anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So thanks for sharing that story. That's, that's great. You're welcome. All right. Yeah. So let's dive into the story of narrative therapy through the eyes of Jill Friedman. Where, where should we start? Um, gosh, I, I guess I can, when you were saying that, I was thinking um, that for me, I guess the story began when um, Michael White first came to North America. So you could speak to people in Australia who would tell a longer story because mm-hmm. he had been working there a number of years um, he lives. He lived in Australia, but he had been developing these ideas for a number of years, and he had met um, David Epstein, who lives in New Zealand, and they had been developing ideas together mm-hmm. um, before I ever knew anything about it. Um, so for me, though, the story uh, begins before narrative therapy had a name um, in some of the early days when Michael White uh, first came to North America. Mm. What were some of the, the things that he was learning and some of the, the experiences he had that um, really began to move him into this direction? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, my idea about um, some of how this developed had to do with a lot of the ideas happening in family therapy were happening on this side of the world. It mm-hmm. was before the days of personal computers. Mm-hmm. And I, so... Um, I know that the group at Dulwich Center were really excited when they'd get um, videos of of therapy demonstrations, but there were long periods. They didn't have access to 
um, the conferences, the trainings, things that we were having that we're developing here. Yeah. And I think that created this ground where they were developing their own ideas that fit the culture there. So I think they were doing a lot of different things before I uh, knew anything about it. And Carl Tom, who's a psychiatrist in Calgary, Canada, was on a sabbatical um, and he met Michael White yeah. and went to something that Michael did and just really, I think, fell in love with the ideas. Mm -hmm. And so Carl had a lot to do with Michael coming to this country. After Carl's sabbatical was over, he, um, when people invited him to uh, give workshops, he often said, I would love to do that. And I would love to bring my colleague, Michael White with me because he wanted to spread the ideas. He was yeah. really excited about them and wanted to spread them. So when I first met Michael, um, mm -hmm. it was, I think it was 1987, but I'm not a hundred percent sure about mm -hmm. that. But there was a big family therapy conference in uh, Chicago, and yeah. he was coming to that conference. And because of that, a local organization was having him for one day. And um, some colleagues of mine who did really small workshops were having him for two days after that. Mm -hmm. So I saw him for three days in a row. And it was really different than any therapy I had seen. But you were asked, you asked me a different question. What was he learning? I'm not sure. Um, well, this is, I, I just thought of this while you were talking. This could maybe help flesh it out a little bit. Like when you <laughs> first met Michael White and when he was first coming over to North America and introducing these ideas, what mm -hmm. were some of those ideas that really uh, surprised you and how were they different or in contrast to maybe what the mainstream family therapy in 1980s, you know, America was like? So, Derek, this is a little embarrassing, but uh -oh. I'll tell you, um, <laughs> when, when, when I first met Michael, he um, he was he lectured. Okay. And I had this notebook and I wrote down all these things he said. And I later realized that I had no idea what he was talking about, hmm. that it just like went right over my head. Hmm. Um, but what, what I did notice was that the, so I, we were behind a one-way mirror. It was before the days of reflecting team or outsider witness mm -hmm. practices, but, but I saw him do a number of live demonstrations. And what I noticed was the look in the room, what was happening in the room. In, and it was different than what I had seen before. Yeah. And so I noticed like families would come in and they would, their heads would be bowed. They would be speaking softly. And during the course of the conversation, they would lean back and there was laughter and there were people like saying things mm -hmm. beyond just responding to questions like the whole mood of the room changed. And um, I also noticed that Michael spent a lot of time getting to know people in a way that had nothing to do with problems. Mm. You know, he would talk with, with a teenager about skateboarding and try to figure out if skateboarding was different in Australia than it was in North America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he said, he talked about where he was from um, and it was more personal, yeah. um, more interactive, more yeah. collaborative and more fun. Yeah. And, and I felt like something was happening where people 
felt better about themselves just by being part of that conversation. So it was really exciting. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. like you said, it's personal. It's, um, it's even, you know, the word I even thought of as well is, is maybe it's even just by Michael, you know, I've, I've read several accounts of just him being very transparent with people as well. But, um, yeah. what was that like? Like, so you're with a group of people and you're watching this, uh, take place. What's the general, like, vibe or mood of the room are people kind of like shocked are they confused are they impressed are they turned off by that so derek uh, i'm gonna like tell you a little bit about the context okay i love context so okay so the second two days which is where this really came alive for me um, some colleagues and friends, Jennifer Andrews and Dave Clark, were hosting Michael. Mm -hmm. they're, they're now living in Los Angeles, but at the time they were in Chicago and they hosted a lot of um, therapists, particularly family therapists who were mm -hmm. developing ideas and, and publishing. So they had a little group of people who, who often came to these things, mm -hmm. but nobody had heard of Michael White. Um, and Jennifer... Um, didn't really know a lot about him, just that a, a different colleague of hers suggested that, that she might be interested in sponsoring him. Mm -hmm. So she told a lot of people that he was coming and that he was from Australia and that, you know, people were excited about him, but almost nobody signed up for this workshop because mm. he was unknown. Yeah. And so I think there were six people maybe, and okay. plus Jennifer and Dave, that made eight people. And Jennifer thought, oh, this really isn't enough people. Mm -hmm. But she, in the past, had hosted um, Luigi Boscolo and Gianfranco Cicchini from the Milan team. Mm -hmm. And so they were also coming to the family therapy conference. And so she mm -hmm. thought, well, maybe they'd be interested in seeing this, this person who's developing new ideas. So she invited them to come. So the day of the, of the workshop, we're all standing around talking. I knew Gianfranco and Luigi because I had been to Milan twice to go to their English language training. And uh, I learned a lot from them and mm -hmm. I like them tremendously. So we were all standing around and they were, you know, they were these Italian men in these gorgeous designer suits mm -hmm. and the door opens and Michael in an Australian Kuji sweater, one of those <laughs> really bright sweaters mm -hmm. walks in. The contrast was quite startling. Mm -hmm. And he looks over and recognizes these two famous men. He was just like sort of beginning in the, on this, you know, in this arena, yeah. he looked at them and you could just see the color drain from his face. <laughs> I guess Jennifer had not let him know she had invited them. Wow. But he came in and they welcomed him and, you know, the things went on and he talked about his ideas and then he did a live interview. Mm -hmm. So there, at a certain point, he took a break. Mm -hmm. And so he came behind the mirror to talk with us. And as he walked into the room, Luigi and Gianfranco, I mean, the, the Milan team did a lot of um, sort of hypothesizing which yeah. is not part of what we do in narrative therapy. And so they're talking to each other and they're saying, yeah, I think it was the mother. No, the father, I was a triangle. And they're like going back and forth. And we're all watching these two famous men having this debate and Michael's standing there. And then he says, 
stop. Mm. And, and there was this absolute silence in the room. Hmm. And Michael said, I, this is not what I want to know. Mm-hmm. What I want to know is what are you noticing that the family members are already doing that's making a difference? Mm. And everybody just like sort of scrambled and then slowly people came up with some ideas. Michael wrote it down on his yellow notepad and then he starts walking back into the room and Gianfranco says, if he doesn't like the opera, why does he want to be a family therapist? Hmm. And um, for me, I I learned a lot from uh, these two men from the Milan team and but and at that moment, when I look back, I'm seeing a difference. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing something really different evolving. Yeah. We were moving from the position of the therapist hypothesizing the therapist as expert mm-hmm. to a kind of recognition that the people who come to us for help already have a lot of answers. Yeah. They're experts in their own life. I could just in that moment, the difference in those ways of thinking. And th- so that really stayed with me. That's one of the things that really sets narrative therapy apart is this idea that we believe that people um, can be the experts in their lives and can, you know, they are the ones that have agency uh, over the stories that they live. And so how do we, how do we help them to maybe live into that agency or to recognize it more? Are there any other key features that maybe you either noticed there or you noticed over the years um, that really set narrative therapy apart um, from yeah. other from other forms of therapy. Well, I believe that Michael talked about this when I didn't really understand what he was talking about. Yeah, um, but I I came to appreciate it more and more, and that is in a lot of of therapy, there's a kind of individualizing. And that could, or it could be like within the family, but thinking mm-hmm. about problems as residing in, in people yeah. and um, that depoliticizes people's lives. And what, one of the things I appreciate most about narrative therapy is the recognition of the sociopolitical context yeah. that support problems and that have people thinking that their lives are problematic Um and being able to make that visible mm-hmm. so that we're, so that people are experiencing, they're not experiencing the problems as something about a faulty identity, mm-hmm. but much more contextually and politically. I think that's crucial, a crucial difference in narrative therapy. Yeah. And I, and I think that that particular point that you just mentioned is one of the things that you know, when I read the statement for the first time, you know, the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem. That was like, yes, that's what, that's what I've been like trying to con- tell people for years. You know, I just <laughs> never put it so like eloquently, but that's like, that's something that I, I feel like has been so important. And I think many people can resonate with that idea as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because I feel like there are a lot of discourses out there that, try to, 
you know, point the finger at you, the person, like there is something inside you, like you are the problem instead of ta- uh, failing to recognize like context is so important, you know, recognizing that we all live in a context and act out our stories in a context. So, so as you know, the years go on, you know, as you, as you get into, you know, the nineties, but when you go back to doing, you know, your practice of family therapy, what, what starts changing and how does your relationship, um, with the Dulwich center and Michael White, uh, how does that affect that? And what does that all look like? Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, um, from the moment I, I was, saw Michael work. I, I wanted to do something different and it was, I wanted to work the way he did. And it's interesting because I had studied a number of different therapies over time. And I had the idea that I would always switch what I, the therapy I was doing. Cause I thought I would be bored mm-hmm. and I thought it would be a good idea to switch. Before I talk more about that, though, I wanted to just say one thing about that, what we were talking about before. Yeah, go ahead. Um, And that is, I had always been uncomfortable with hypothesizing, partly because I didn't think I was good at it. Mm -hmm. I I, I saw people who had all these great ideas, and I never thought I was, I I didn't have those ideas. Um, And so not hypothesizing, one of the, the, the switches is that instead of like standing aside and making having these ideas about what's going on, being able to unpack people's experience and learn together mm-hmm. what's supporting yeah. problems. Um, to me, that just freed up so much and made me really enjoy therapy a lot more. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so after the first... Uh, time I saw Michael, I went back. Gene was not able to come to that. And I just said to him, this is what we've been looking for. Yeah. We have to learn to do this. And I remember teaching, trying to teach him everything I had seen. I taught mm-hmm. him about externalizing, I remember. Yeah. And we saw a family shortly after that. And we um, externalized the problem uh, mm-hmm linguistically. And when they came back for a second session, mm-hmm. it was interesting. It was a mother, father, and probably about an 11 year old girl. Mm-hmm. And when they came back, the father was speaking an externalized language. Mm. The mother wasn't, she was mm-hmm. speaking in internalized language. Mm-hmm. And the daughter was sort of looking between the two of them. And Jean and I had no idea what to do. Oh, wow. And um, so we thought we got, we have to like, we have to spend more time with Michael White. We have to like learn about this. So we started just sort of being, trying to, whenever he came to North America, being, um, being there and Mm -hmm. and learning. Um, And there was, there were a number of us in those first years in different parts of the country who were really interested in these ideas. And we started um, arranging whenever there was a family therapy conference, Mm -hmm. we would come a day or two early or stay a couple of days late and just talk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we saw families together. If it was, um, if the conference was someplace, one of us lived, 
If not, we would just talk about places we were stuck or ideas we had. Mm -hmm. We were like trying to create sort of a team for each other to be able to learn these ideas, which were at odds with, um, you know, many ideas. And the group that came to Jennifer and Dave's first conference, we started meeting like every other week. And one of us would bring somebody or bring a family we were working with and we would we would work together trying to practice the ideas. Yeah. So a lot of um, connections came from that. A, a lot of people interested. Yeah. So you've got these connections. You're kind of meeting. It's almost like you're meeting your people, you know, I kind of mm-hmm. the, the <laughs> feeling I got when I was in your cohort is like you're meeting people from all over and you're like, oh, there you are. You exist. Yay. This is great. Right. So you're meeting, you're meeting people and you're practicing and, you know, as, as you're doing that, what is, is your relationship to, this might sound like a weird question, but like, is your relationship to your work, to your therapy, is that changing? How's that looking? Like the way that you perceive what you're doing and, you know, your relate, your connection with people. Uh, clients that you're working with, with families? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it did change quite a lot. I mean, one of the things that uh, Michael really talked about was the two-way nature of a relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, that that we get something, not just the people that we're seeing. And he really talked about eloquently about like sitting across from somebody and thinking, I wouldn't be doing nearly as well as you if I found myself in the same situation. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. So I think, uh, I think it did change my relationship with, with people that I was seeing. There was less distance, mm-hmm. um, more collaboration. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I was back in the master's program, I remember watching a video that of you and Michael White together. Uh-huh. Um, kind of yeah. tag teaming. So, um, <laughs> was that was that in Australia? Was that in America? Um, how did that all come about? Where you guys were actually in the same room together, uh, doing therapy? Um, I didn't know you saw that video. I haven't seen it in a <laughs> long time. That was um, that was in Chicago. So, okay. one thing that happened. Um, in my personal story of, of narrative therapy mm-hmm. was um, Jennifer was from Los Angeles. I talked about how Jennifer and Dave were yes. the people who invited Michael. Jennifer lived, had, had family and roots in Los Angeles, and she decided she wanted to move back to Los Angeles. So Jennifer and Dave moved, but they said before they moved, they came to me and Jean and they said, you know, we did all this work to set up a nonprofit and we have like Michael White coming. Can you take this over? Mm. And so, and we, we didn't have any ideas of wanting to have a, a family therapy center, but yeah. they sort of convinced us along with Virginia Simons, um, who also lived here at the time. And the three of us um, took made what what their center was we created evanston family therapy center and we hosted michael Mm -hmm. white and um and we we began um a relationship with him where we hosted him about once a year i think over the course of 20 years so he came many 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 times to 
Evanston and um, and did workshops, small workshops. We let we limited it to small groups of people. And the other thing in those early years when Michael was first coming, he invited those of us who were really invested and interested in the ideas. He invited us uh, to come to Australia, not mm-hmm. not for a workshop, but he just there. You know, many of us went, and Gene and I um, spent a week and a half behind the mirror watching him work mm-hmm. in those early days. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met David Epstein on that trip as well, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. Um, and, and they were just, I think, I think Dulwich was really interested in relationship. And so they yeah. invited many people who seemed like they were really interested to come and, and join in on what was going on at Dulwich center. They also created like, um, a couple of um, scholarships. And so mm-hmm. they sent people from Australia to be with some of us and sit behind our mirrors and join us in our work, which was really interesting as well. Do you think that, I, I almost would call it hospitable, the way that they would invite you all all there. Do you think that's kind of what contributed to narrative therapy kind of expanding around the world? Gosh, that's a hard question. I do think the openness and the welcomeness and um, the, um, made a big difference. And also, there was this sense of real. So I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story that yeah. I think illustrates something. Okay. So really early on, I don't know how early on, but but fairly early on, when. Um, we had sponsored Michael in a workshop, Cheryl, mm-hmm. uh, Cheryl White was with him. And so they, so he, the workshop happened. And then in the, the day after the workshop, first thing in the morning, they said, you know, we were thinking we'll take you downtown Chicago. You'll see, Millenn- you know, I guess Millennium Park didn't exist at the time, but we'll, you know, we'll show you the sites around Chicago and, mm-hmm. and go up in the Sears Tower, things like that. And um, they sort they said, you know, what we'd really like to do is um, go to your center and watch some videos of your work. Hmm. Now, nobody had ever, you know, I I knew a number of people who taught different different kinds of therapy, had relationships with with people. There had been people in Chicago. Nobody had ever asked to see our work. I mean, they might be willing to see it, you know, if we had negotiated supervision or something like that, but they just wanted to see it. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to see it. And so they came and they watched some videos and they, um, they said, well, you know, we have this thing at Dulwich where it's called Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. So when you come to Australia, like you might want to be able, you might want to show this video as, and do a Friday afternoon so people can see what you're doing. So there was this real um, welcoming, I think, yeah, of, of people's work. Wow. Yeah. So they really, they were interested in what you were doing, and you, you, yeah. you felt that that was genuine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I can tell you another story. I, I. I don't want to center my relationship, um, particularly with Michael, because I think he was, I think there are many people who had, you know, pretty great relationships with Michael. Totally. So, so I'm telling this not about me, but about him. Mm -hmm. So he had been 
in this country and went back home and he called me on the telephone and he said, I was just watching this reflecting team and you asked some questions I wouldn't have thought of. I think you've, you've struck new ground. And he wanted to talk to me about the questions that I had asked on the reflecting team. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, so noticing what, what your students, because I, I was a student, what your students are doing, I think in that way and, and being interested and in not just to help them, but because you think they have a good idea, that was really characteristic yeah. of Michael. And it's still characteristic of David. Mm-hmm. narrative therapy grow and as you've seen it you know evolve even you know with Michael White's passing seeing how it's it's reached so many people around the world um I don't know as you see that what are your thoughts on on that as you see where narrative therapy is heading into the future are you encouraged are you you know excited like like what are what are some of your thoughts as as you see the future unfold with narrative um boy that's a really difficult question um i'm really heartened by how much interest there is and how people in different parts of the world have taken it up differently um i'm really heartened by that um i i really you know i i think that um, there have been a lot of developments, continuing developments. David Epstein has continued developing ideas after Michael's death. Um, I think that even though Michael did a lot of community work that um, Cheryl White and David Denbra um, particularly have developed it in other ways, David has, has done some really remarkable um, writing um, about a number of things. So, so I think there are a lot of developments. Um, I also think there's a lot going (laughs) against, I talked to somebody at one point who was, um, selling books in a narrative books in a number of countries. And he said that, um, he thought that less narrative books were in being sold uh, for example, in the United States, as opposed to Canada, yeah. because because of our insurance system, mm. and because of like because of the way we insist upon classifying people, diagnosing people, pathologizing people, um, in order for them to be in a therapy context. So there are some forces acting against the kind of work that we're doing. Do you? But th- their yeah. work is also proliferating. Right. Yeah. Do you think what you just stated there? Do you think that's one of the reasons why maybe in America? Because I know we've had conversations about this. Why in America narrative therapy isn't as prominent as it is maybe in some other places? I do. I do. And the idea of um, best practices, the kinds of evaluative and testing criteria, what what's called research. I think a lot of things uh, really miss the subtleties of narrative therapy and what it's what it does. Yeah. Yeah. So the final question that I, I kind of want to wrap with is 
in 47 years of doing therapy and you know you bringing narrative therapy into your practice around 87 and beyond <laughs> for anyone who's out there who's you know looking to maybe explore narrative practices more or they're in a therapeutic or a social work or a community work context and they're looking at that and they're being like 47 years you know that's i i'm a ways away from there you know <laughs> um but what sort of um i don't know what sort of has what sort of sustains you you know what what keeps you going what you know cuz i can imagine you probably had some pretty difficult conversations with people and maybe even some tragic stories that you know you can recall over 47 years so i don't know what is it what's kept you going and what keeps you you know, still passionate and still invested in narrative therapy after all these years? Well, I guess um, I, I sort of feel like being a therapist is really amazing because we get led into so many people's lives. Mm. I mean, I think that's incredible. I think that's such a privilege and such a fantastic uh, thing, such a fantastic set of experiences. So, um, and, and I feel like I get to accompany people, sort of walk beside them, partner with them and learn so much. And, and, you know, it, I really, really love that. And you're right there. There are some times when I feel like it's really hard. Mm. Um, but most, luckily most of the time, um, there's a, most of the time I feel like some, there's so much that's offered through these practices that it feels good. And maybe that sustains me through the times when it feels hard. Yeah. But I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy getting to, to understand people and learn different things about people and, um, and have a bit of a sense of what their experience is like. And also to feel like the questions make a difference, you know, that, that um, I'm contributing in some way as, as they contribute to my life as well. Yeah. But it's not a hundred percent joyful. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. But the way that you're able to, you know, have, it sounds like from what I'm hearing, there's like this larger sense of purpose that you have, um, mm -hmm. that even in those times, it kind of keeps you going. Yeah. So. And also like when it's hard, I feel like I maybe can learn something. I maybe can do something, you mm, know, I mean, yeah. I try to keep thinking about like how it could, how it could be easier or better in some way which isn't to say that there aren't things in life that are just hard because right. there are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jill, as we wrap up, are there any final thoughts, anything you want to leave our audience with as we close? Um, gosh, I, I guess I want to encourage people who are interested in these ideas to find out more. Um, one of the things that we didn't, say, but that you know so well, Derek, mm -hmm. is that even though I'm a therapist and I'm applying these things in the therapy world, there are people in a lot of different um, kinds of work who right, are right. like uh, all sorts of work who are applying the ideas. And um, also they make a difference in people's lives. So I, I hope that 
um, I hope that people listen to your podcast and learn more about a lot of those possibilities. Yeah, I hope so too. And so, you know, for those of you out there who are listening and, you know, you're getting a taste for this world of narrative, uh, I am not a therapist, but I am a narrative practitioner uh, right here in South Florida. So if you want to learn more about what I do, um, feel free to visit my website, allthingsnarrative.com, where I offer workshops and life coaching. Live a Meaningful Story uh, is actually my innovation project from my master's program. And Jill was the one who graded me on the, the oral presentation. And so a lot of these, you know, ideas, um, you know, Jill really helped me refine them. Jill and others at, you know, at people at Dulwich like David and, but yeah, so feel free to check that out if you want to learn more and be able to learn to make meaningful connections in your life and be able to, you know, live a meaningful story. And so Jill, thank you so much for being our guest on this first ever episode of this podcast and um, we hope to have more conversations with you in the future and all the best to everything that you're doing with Evanston and Dulwich and all the organizations that you get to partner with. We are so blessed to have had you here. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And for all my listeners out there, we will be back next week with uh, Narrative 101. And we're going to talk about the narrative metaphor that Jill mentioned. So we'll dive deep into that. This is your friendly narrative practitioner, Derek Hatch, signing off, and we'll be back next time.